is verses that we just read. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will for us to give thanks always, to be grateful in all circumstances. The Lord commands us to be grateful, and yet I think when we really think about that verse, our tendency to romanticize it goes quickly away. Because we know that we all fail to do this. In fact, it seems like it's part of our spiritual DNA that we have a tendency to grumble against the Lord. We have to admit that complaining comes much more naturally to us than gratitude does. Even though the Lord has done everything for us in Christ Jesus, we struggle to be a grateful people. We look at the book of Numbers, that book that records the Lord's great deliverance. But in the midst of that great deliverance, a recurring theme is the ingratitude and grumbling of the people. Complaining is the opposite of being thankful, and yet complaining comes very naturally to us. I think this is strong evidence that our sanctification is imperfect in this life. Gratitude is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something as Christians that we must cultivate in the Lord. It's something that we need reinforced again and again. And Psalm 116, I think, goes a long way in this regard. Because in this psalm, we have the words of a man whose prayer has found a gracious answer from God. He, he recalled the terrible death grip of sin, and he recounts the Lord's salvation. Just glance at verses 5 and 6. He says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. When I was brought low, he saved me. From the lips of this man, we, we hear salvation recounted with an outpouring of thanksgiving and praise. And friends, in Christ Jesus, we share in that same great salvation. Could it not be us who praise the Lord for our salvation in Jesus Christ, saying, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. When I was brought low, he saved me. As people who have likewise been rescued from the curse and the grip of sin and brought to that quiet rest of salvation that the psalmist speaks of, we also must share in the psalmist gratitude. We must share in his vow to lead a thankful life to our great God and Savior. And so we need to begin with the why question. Why do we give thanks 
as believers? Well, the short answer could be, well, we're commanded to. And that's true, but why are we commanded to? What do we give thanks for? Well, we give thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what the writer is getting out at here. He is talking about how the Lord saved him from sin and death. This isn't a deliverance from some situation of physical danger. He talks about how his soul was delivered from death. And in his outpouring of praise and thanksgiving, we clearly hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. The good news that Jesus redeemed us by taking upon himself our sin and our guilt. The good news that he submitted himself to the punishment that was ours. The good news that that Christ credits us his perfect obedience. And in the climactic statement, it appears in, uh, in verse 13, and I would remind you when you're, when you're reading the Old Testament in the Hebrew uh, Bible, the, the, um, the climax comes in the middle, not, not at the end. And so we find it in verse 13, this statement involving the cup of salvation. And I would submit to you that that's a packed statement. It's a packed statement that proclaims the gospel. It's part of a long strand of cup theology in the Bible. In the ancient world, a cup held significance. They were filled, no pun intended, they were filled with covenantal symbolism. If we think about this, to a degree in our culture, cups still hold a significance. Um, If you go to a wedding uh, celebration, what will you often have? You'll have a toast and people will lift a glass or a cup. It's, It's an action that signifies something. It signifies honor and good wishes for the person or the couple. But in ancient times... Taking a cup with someone meant you were you were agreeing to take on a certain role or agree to a certain responsibility. A cup was often shared between two parties entering into a covenant. Cups and covenants were very much related. You think about it this way. Today we sign contracts. In the ancient world, they lifted a cup together. The cup was symbolic of a pledge to uphold a duty, to take part in a responsibility, to agree to a certain experience. And it shouldn't surprise us that often Jesus used this same symbolic language. On more than one occasion, he spoke of his sacrificial death as a cup. In John 18, 11, he said, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? In other words, Christ had a duty, an experience, 
that he had agreed to. His cup was him taking upon himself the experience of being the sin-bearing lamb. His cup was his cross, where he fulfilled that pledge to die for sinners like us. We see that cup theology in the upper room when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. He used a cup. And what did it signify and seal? This cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. Cups and covenants went together. And when we examine this cup theology in Scripture, we find that there are these two distinct cups, each of which symbolizes a key point of the gospel. We, we find in places an awful cup, a, a cup of fury, a cup of wrath. But then there's the cup of salvation that we read here. And these two cups together proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many passages that we could go to that speak of that cup of wrath. Sometimes it call, it's called the cup of fury, the cup of staggering. Uh, Isaiah 51, 7, God says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. But in other places, we read of a very different cup, a cup of salvation. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the communion cup being the cup of blessing. Uh, at the end of Psalm 23, eternal life in heaven is pictured with the image of a cup that overflows, the cup of salvation. Two cups, the cup of salvation, the cup of wrath. The cup that Christ drank in his atoning death was the cup of wrath. And remember, the cup symbolizes a responsibility, a commitment to take part in a certain experience, either good or bad. And friends, we come into this world, we are born into this world with the cup of wrath in our hands. What does Paul say? We are born children of wrath. We come into this world deserving the judgment of God for our sin. And, and all those who reject Christ will be held responsible. For their guilt and their sin. They will one day have to drink that dreadful cup. They will face that eternal judgment and condemnation by rejecting Christ. That is the experience they are agreeing to take upon themselves. But Christ, in his work of redemption, took that cup of wrath that should have been ours. And he drank it down to the bitter end. 
And by drinking that cup, he took responsibility for all of our sin and all of our guilt. He drank that burning wrath for our sin as our substitute. He took upon himself the experience that should have been ours. And one writer put it, he took our hell so that we could enter his heaven. And in the gospel accounts of Christ's agony in Gethsemane, we get a small glimpse into just how awful that cup of wrath is. Jesus agonized over that cup, praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Luke tells us that he sweat great drops of blood. It was a terrible cup to drink, but he drank it willingly for us. And friends, if you have trusted Christ today, you are invited to lift not the cup of wrath, but the cup of salvation. And that's something to be thankful for. Because without Christ, we would have drunk the cup of wrath alone, estranged from God. But now in Christ, we get to lift the cup of salvation with Jesus himself in his house at his table. And that is the significance of the table that we come to today. This is why we give thanks. You see, the cup of salvation, first and foremost, communicates what Christ has done, the responsibility he took upon himself. It reminds us that he rendered that perfect obedience for us. That is, that is the experience, the responsibility he took upon himself as the second Adam. To render the obedience to his father that we never could have. And likewise, he agreed to take upon himself the curse of our sin. The cup proclaims his work, the reality that we have been redeemed by his blood. And friends, this is why we give thanks. You see, if we fail to understand and meditate on the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, we will not be a thankful people. But if we do, if we meditate upon Christ and his gospel and his cross, then our hearts should overflow with gratitude to the one who gave everything for us. So that's why we give thanks, but it, it doesn't end here. Because once we enter into a saving relationship with Christ, the cup of salvation symbolizes something for us too. The dividing point of the psalm is, is the question and the answer, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? And then the answer, I will take the cup 
of salvation and call in the name of the Lord. So if sharing a cup with someone was symbolic of taking a responsibility or a certain role, then that means that we must, as Christ's followers, by taking that cup, we're making an agreement to respond to him in love and gratitude and service to him. And so let's secondly consider how we give thanks. And I think this is an important question to consider. How do we give thanks? Because if you think about it in our culture, we have a saying. Say thanks. We tell our kids, say thanks. And I think that reveals that our society's concept of gratitude really doesn't go very far beyond the realm of words and feelings. But what we find in the Bible is that biblical thanksgiving has very little to do with words, but a lot to do with actions. The, the Hebrew word for thanksgiving, it carries with it the idea of an action or a response. Uh, glance at verse 17. Uh, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Notice how there are, there's a response or an action attached to thanksgiving. It's, it's a response to something great that has been given. And so every time the psalmist says, I, I will thank the Lord, he, he has in mind a certain action. In the Bible, thanksgiving has a corresponding vow or action. And this, this reminds us that thanksgiving, is, it's, it's not a feeling. It's not mere words, but it's an action. So how do we give thanks? In the second half of this psalm, we see some things that encapsulate Christian thanksgiving. Uh, there are, I think, three key statements that are made here. There's that statement that I will take up the cup of salvation, I will call on the name of the Lord, and I will pay my vows in the presence of the Lord and his people. And what do those mean? First of all, taking the cup of salvation means that we assume both the benefits and the responsibilities of the saved life. Taking the cup of salvation, when, when we do that at this table in a little bit, we are taking hold of the benefits of all that Christ has done for us, but we are also taking hold of our responsibilities. It's a pledge of obedience. Embracing Christ and trusting him for salvation means that we have pledged something. We have agreed to something. In our psalm, the, the writer asks, how can I thank the Lord for all of his benefits? And he answers in verse 13, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. He's, he's making a pledge. He's saying, I will uphold my responsibility as your servant. 
Notice the language of service in verse 16. O Lord, truly, I am your servant. And friends, that is a key element of the Lord's Supper. It is a renewal by us of our pledge to walk in obedience to Jesus. And while the Lord's Supper is first and foremost about what Jesus has done for you, it's also a pledge by us to take up the cup of salvation is to embrace our Christian calling, both its benefits and its duties. But second, we see here that we, we give thanks when we cultivate and express gratitude in and through worship. Friends, the primary place where we cultivate true Christian gratitude is here. It's in corporate worship. And that's... I think that's a foreign idea to much of modern American Christianity today. But as we reflect on, on why the church today seems to be so ungrateful, could the simple answer be she is not worshiping the Lord together on the Lord's Day? You see, the expressions that we see here are used to denote corporate worship. When, when the psalmist says, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord, that's an Old Testament phrase used for worshiping the Lord. Notice the place where this gratitude is expressed and cultivated in verses 14 and 18. Verse 14, it's in the presence of God's people. Verse 19, in the courts of the Lord's house. Where do we express, where do we cultivate a thankful heart? It's here. This, this is the, the primary place where our sin of ingratitude is mortified and our, and our gratitude is cultivated as we, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, hear of the glorious gospel of Jesus and we're reminded of the reason that we are to be thankful. Thirdly, we give thanks by making and keeping vows to the Lord. You'll notice that twice the promise is made. In verses 14 and 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Friends, this reminds us that it is a, a good thing, it is a biblical thing for us to make tangible promises to the Lord. To make these vows to Him. Vows to be a better servant to the Lord, to be a better servant to His people, whatever it might be. When these kind of vows are made in Christ, in the power of His Spirit, these are things that are good and right, and they are ways in which we express our gratitude to the Lord. As we pause and we, we think about this, 
this duty to thank the Lord, to to pay vows to him, it should make us a bit uneasy. It maybe even should disturb us because we know that we're notoriously ungrateful people. We're prone to grow cold in our love for Christ. We're prone to take his blessings for granted. We're prone to take Christ for granted. How often do we become ungrateful vow breakers? We're going to sing another portion of Psalm 116 shortly. We should ask, how can I, how can I sing those words with any real honesty? How can I promise to God that I'm going to pay my vows, that I'm going to serve him, that I'm going to be thankful when I know that I have failed? And I'm going to fail again in the future. The answer to that problem is to remember to whom these words belong. You see, it calls us to ultimately rely on the true, vow-keeping, obedient servant, Jesus. We can never forget who originally spoke these words. Yes, they came through human writers, but we know that our eternal God is behind these words. And in Colossians 3.16, the Psalms are given this unique designation as the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ. That means long before they were the words of David or Asaph or any other writer, they were the Word of Christ. And in this vein, one commentator calls Psalm 116 the Redeemer's Resurrection Song of Thanksgiving. The Redeemer's Resurrection Song of Thanksgiving. Some of you may, may know this, but this psalm was part of uh, what was called the Egyptian Hallel. Psalms 113 to 118. These psalms were sung throughout the Passover feast, and, and Jesus would have sung this psalm in the upper room. In Matthew 26, 30, when we read that they had when they had sung a hymn, they went out. That was Psalm 118. But this means that our Lord Jesus would have taken these words upon his lips in the upper room, just Moments, hours before the dark agony of Gethsemane and Calvary, and you know, reconstructing from extra-biblical history, um, it's it's very likely that this psalm was was sung during the lifting of the third cup of the Passover meal. And that third cup of the Passover meal, guess what it was called? The cup of redemption. Or the cup of salvation. And that was the cup that our Lord likely used to institute the Lord's Supper. 
And I think that's remarkable to think about, that our Lord Jesus sung of the cup of salvation. He lifted up that cup of redemption, knowing that he would first have to lift the cup of wrath in order for his people to drink of the cup of salvation. This led the Dutch theologian Klaus Schilder to write, In the upper room, Christ sung this psalm as it had never been sung before and as it never could be sung again, for he was about to fulfill it as he went to the cross. See, we should read this psalm and we should hear and listen for the voice of our resurrected Savior, thanking his Father for raising him from the dead. Can you hear the resurrected Christ speaking the words of verse 8? For you have delivered my soul from death. See, friends, this answers the question how we can take these words and sing them and make them our own. They belong to Christ. And he mediates our praises. He mediates our vows. We know that we can't keep our vows in our own strength, but we look to the one who kept his vows to perfection. The one who by his Holy Spirit can strengthen us and forgive us when we fail. As we close, I want you to notice one final image here. That there is an exchange. There's an exchange that takes place here. The, the cup of salvation belongs to Jesus, not to us. But notice the psalmist speaks of taking the cup. Uh, the ESV says, I will lift, but the idea is taking or, or receiving. The, the idea is that, that someone's giving it to him. And if it is true that we were born clenching the cup of wrath, and Jesus took our cup of wrath, there's an exchange here. Jesus takes from us the cup of wrath that we deserve, and he hands us the cup of salvation, there is an exchange. And that is a term that has been used throughout the history of the church to describe the glory of the gospel, the great exchange. That all of our sin and our guilt was imputed to Jesus and paid for, and his perfect righteousness was credited to us by faith. And this is why we give thanks. He has done it all. And as we come to the table and as we, we quite literally take part in this symbolic action of lifting a cup, let's keep in mind all that that symbolizes. That we get to lift that cup of salvation because Christ drank the cup of wrath to its bitter dregs. And let's remember that by taking that cup, we are agreeing to assume both the benefits and the responsibilities of our lives as servants of Jesus Christ.
And as we do so, let's give thanks and glory to him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we, we know that we are ungrateful, Lord, that we so easily lose sight of the glory of our great God and Savior who has given everything for us. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would forgive us for our ingratitude and that you would cultivate within us true gratitude and worship. Lord, may you fix our eyes upon Christ Jesus, our Savior, and him crucified, even as we, we now come to your table. Lord, may we behold the crucified Savior and all that he has done for us. And Lord, may you cause us to respond in thanksgiving. And Lord, may we, may we be a witness to this world in, in this way. We read from first, Second Timothy 3 that a mark of these last days is that people will be ungrateful. Lord, make us a grateful people so that we might be a witness to the glory of Jesus. Apply these words to our heart now, Lord. Inform our understanding as we come to your table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.